It's always an honor to be here. It's always one of the things that I look forward to uh, when I'm invited. And I think this is the fifth or the sixth year in a row uh, that I've had the chance to be a part of this. So uh, thankful to be here with you guys. Um, I'm passionate about the topic that we're going to be looking at tonight and really that you're looking at all weekend. The topic of, of strangers and sojourners, right? Talking about this idea of living as exiles, as aliens in the world. And I think it's important that now more than ever, Christians, especially your generation, need to understand the challenge of being a Christian in public, in a culture that will not celebrate it or pat you on the back for it, but will likely ridicule you for it. It's important that you understand what it means when you're signing up to say, I follow Jesus. In a culture that's not going to applaud it and think that it's special. Instead, it's learning to follow Jesus and obey him and proclaim his name in a world that doesn't think it's special. That's what makes you a stranger and a sojourner. It's what makes you an exile. It's what makes you an alien. And I want to especially talk about it and help you to understand tonight that following Jesus means that your views are going to increasingly be foreign to others. Your beliefs will cost you in many circles. If you haven't already experienced that, then there's one of two reasons why. You're either one, only around Christians, or two, you're not living a very public Christian faith. Your views, your beliefs are going to cost you in many circles. And here's the deal. Unless something radically changes in our country, where revival sweeps over our nation, as it has done in years and generations past, unless that happens, this is what you can anticipate from now until your dying day. Are you ready? The culture is going to increasingly become more hostile towards you. The, the culture is going to grow more and more, not only disinterested, but with disdain towards you and towards me. And you need to learn to live with that now and be prepared for that now so it doesn't wreck you then. That's what we're talking about this weekend. That's what we're talking about tonight. How many of you have ever read a book or watched a movie that had kind of a plot twist at the end of it? Anybody ever seen one of those? Watched a movie, read a book where you're going along, you're watching or you're reading, and all of a sudden it's like the carpet just gets ripped right out from underneath. And you're like, oh my goodness, I did not see that happen. I didn't see that coming. You know, like the Titanic? I'm just like... I still think there was room for Jack on that, that door, but... Um, but I'm talking about stories that shock you, that you weren't expecting that kind of end. Um, maybe some of you, it's, it's actually older now, but some of you may remember the movie um, uh, The Sixth Sense. How many of you remember The Sixth Sense? Okay, if you haven't seen it, I'm about to split for you. I'm about to ruin it completely. But uh, I have a comedian, my favorite comedian is Nate Rigazzi, and he, he says this. He says, look, you've had 20 years, okay? You've had 20 years. This movie's been out forever, so don't say that you were going to go to your local blockbuster and get it. You weren't, okay? Now, 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 here's what happens. Here's the premise of this movie. Um, there is a counselor who begins to see and to uh, work with this young child. And this child is having all these issues at home. He's having all these issues at school. And after this counselor is building some time and rapport with him, um, the, the kid finally tells him, he says, I see dead people. The, the, I know, I know. <laughs> and so the kid tells 
he tells the counselor, I, I see dead people. And you're just like, oh, man, like, is this for real? Does he for real see dead people? And, and as the movie's going along, uh, the counselor just thinks, you know, he's just saying this. But then he gets to a place where he starts believing this kid really does. And then towards the end of the movie, it happens. What, what do we find out? The counselor is dead. And he's been dead the whole time, the whole movie. I know, I just ruined it for you. If you haven't, if you haven't seen it, that's the whole movie. That's the whole movie. Okay, so... So here's what happens. The first time you see that movie, you're like, what? What? You're like, no way. No way he's been dead. I would have caught that. And so you can't go back and watch it a second time without seeing all the things. You're just like, oh my goodness, he was dead. They shot him at the very beginning. Well, it could have been more obvious he was dead. Right? It could have been more obvious. But we watch it the whole time thinking, no, he's alive. He's doing his thing, right? And, and then when we find out he's dead, you can't ever see it the same way again. There's only one, you only watch that movie one time and get shocked, right? You only watch it one time and get shocked. Every other time it's like you know the ending. Well, well, here's the deal. The first time people saw that movie, it messed us up. It was staggering. It was, it was rip the carpet out from your feet, throw the table over, mind-blowing. The verses we're going to look at tonight, and what I want us to see tonight from Jesus, is you're going to see some things in this passage take place that at first... They stun you and shock you because you can't really believe, one, he's saying what he's saying, and then two, you're not going to believe how he responds to the people's response to him, how he responds to their actions. And what we're going to look at as we see this unfold is we're not just going to see how Jesus interacts with these crowds and interacts with these religious leaders. We're going to have our own little encounter about our reaction and our response to Jesus, too. And here's what we're going to see. Just going to kind of tee up here what we're going to be talking about. Here's what you're going to see. You're going to see something kind of jarring. And here's what's going to be jarring about it. One of the reasons why what you're going to see is jarring is because we've developed a view in our world today, and I hate to say it, but even in our churches today, that just sees Jesus as like this needy, desperate for our devotion kind of attention getter. Right, that he's just, he's so desperate for you to wear his team colors that he'll kind of just let you have him on your terms. However you want to have Jesus, however you want to kind of customize your walk with him, he's kind of cool with just as long as you'll give him some rah-rahs here and there because he's so desperate to have our devotion. And what you're going to bump into, and maybe I should say what you're going to crash into in this passage is that's not really the case at all. That if you want to follow him, you're going to have to follow him as he dictates. And what that will make you is a stranger and a sojourner in this world. So let's look together. John chapter 6. Let me kind of tee up this, this passage and where it's going. In the Gospel of John, John tells us at the very end, at the very end, in John 20, 30 and 31, he says, there are many things that could have been written about Jesus that are not in this book. Okay? He didn't try to capture everything that's ever been said, ever been done about Jesus, but this is what he did say. He says, these things I have written to you, I've written so that you'll believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you'll have life in his name. John doesn't write everything that could be written, but what he has written in the Gospel of John is to show us who Jesus is so that we will believe and that by believing, we'll have eternal life. So he begins his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and there was nothing made that wasn't made through the Word, and the Word became flesh. God became a man, and that person is Jesus. And John sets us into motion with the God who has become flesh. And he begins to, he comes into the world to save a world that's condemned. He comes into a world to redeem it. Though they rebel against him, though they, they don't receive him, he comes for them. 
And he does miracles and signs and wonders, and he's teaching all these things, and they don't get it. They don't get it. Nicodemus doesn't get it in John 3. The Samaritan woman doesn't get it in John 4. The paralytic doesn't get it in John 5. And when we arrive to John 6, we see Jesus interacting with the crowds, and he's saying some things they continue not to get. He says, I'm the bread of life. No one can come to me unless the Father has drawn him. He's saying strong words like that. He says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And all who come to me, I'll never cast them away. That sets up where we pick up tonight in our passage. So let's read verses 41 through 51 together, and then we'll kind of debrief it. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on that last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So the religious leaders are grumbling about the things that Jesus is saying. They're they're grumbling because Jesus is making these big, broad statements about his identity. And he's the bread of life. And no one can come to the the Father but through him. And all these types of things. And and here's what the the, the religious leaders and and the crowds are saying. They're like, hold on a minute. We know this guy. We know where he's from. We know his parents. We know that this is Joseph and Mary's son. So they're in unbelief. But Jesus says, yeah, 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 listen, don't don't grumble among yourselves because only those who the Father draws are going to come to me anyway. I know you're grumbling about we know where you're from and we know who your parents are. And it doesn't shock me that you don't come because only people who are going to come to me are the ones the Father draws to me. And again, they're, they're getting riled up about this as well. And, and then he, he says this. He says, and the one who comes to me will be raised up on that last day. And that last day is capital D day, the day of judgment. The day in which God makes all things new and judges the world. He says, those who come to me, I will raise up on that last day. Now, this is just another example, if you needed another one, uh, of Jesus not giving you the chance to simply call him a good moral teacher, a kind of a, a nice guy. He's not going to let you have him on kind of these, yeah, Jesus was a good man terms. Because here's the deal. Either he's saying the truth here, that everyone who comes to him will live and have eternal life, and that they will be raised up on that last day. He's either telling the truth, that he's the bread of life, or he's a madman. There's really no in between. There's there's really no kind of having him partly. He's either the guy who will raise you up on that last day. He's either the guy that is the bread of life, or he's a liar. Verse 48 and 49, he continues. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And then he says this, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Now, what is he referring to? If you remember your Sunday school stories about the people of Israel led out of Egypt, out of captivity, out of, out of oppression, how does God feed them the, the masses of people, hundreds of thousands, some scholars estimate maybe up to millions of people traveling in the wilderness? How does he feed them? 
manna from heaven. He literally feeds them day by day. They would wake up and there would be bread from heaven. Literally physical bread from heaven. And they would eat it. And, and here's the deal. It's the only way in which they didn't starve to death. But they still died, Jesus says. The bread that came from heaven fed them, but they still died. That bread could not give them eternal life. So Jesus says, I'm the bread that came down from heaven that gives you eternal life. The bread that comes down from heaven that you eat of it, you eat so that you will not die. Now, he doesn't mean that you won't physically die. What he's saying is he's talking about e perishing eternally. You can have eternal life, he says, if you eat this bread that comes from heaven. Now, here's the key. Listen, watch this. He's talking about his own incarnation here, okay? If you're not connecting all the imagery he's doing, think about this picture. The bread that came to feed the Israelites in the, in the wilderness was from heaven, and it came physically. It was real physical bread. And this is what Jesus says. I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven as well. And what he's talking about is his incarnation. This was the God who took on flesh. Jesus is the bread who comes from heaven. And in verse 51, he says, and this bread... Jesus gives for the life of the world, he says, is his what? Is his flesh. This bread that gives life to the world is his flesh. What in the world is he talking about? How does he give up his life for the world by giving up his flesh? He does it where? At, not a rhetorical question, at the cross. In this one passage, watch this. Jesus has talked about the incarnation, I'm the bread that comes from heaven, and this bread that I give up for the life of the world is my flesh. He's talking about the cross in which he will die for sinners. He will be put to death in order to give his people life. Now, watch. Nobody gets what he's talking about. Nobody gets what he's saying. Nobody is understanding it. Nobody's just like, oh yeah, he's talking about, you know, the cross that's going to come up. They're looking at him like, what is he talking about? He's the bread and he's given up his flesh for the world. They don't get what's happening. They're not connecting dots. In fact, they think that he's talking crazy. Let's look at verse 52, going through verse 59. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's a good question. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. The crowds are arguing amongst themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're puzzled. In fact, they might even be a little bit disgusted by how weird this talk is. What does he mean, give up his flesh for us to eat? Now, you need to understand something about Christians in the early church. Do you know for the first 300 years, until Christianity was made legal throughout the Roman Empire, there was rumors and whispers that Christians, listen, 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 were cannibals. People thought Christians were this weird cult of cannibals. You know why they thought we were cannibals? Because all we talked about was eating the flesh and drinking the blood of our Savior. They're always talking about eating flesh and drinking blood. These people are, are, are people eaters. They're cannibals. 
Don't, don't join up with them. They're weird. They're strange. They're, they're foreign to us in our ways. This, this was the sentiment for the early church. And, and this is how they're thinking about it too. They're just like, what is he talking about? Eating his flesh, drinking his blood. So Jesus clears it up real good for them. And he goes on to say, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Ah, that clarifies it. It doesn't. That's sarcasm. What? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. In fact, listen, watch, watch. He goes on to say that phrase, eat my flesh, drink my blood, six more times in that passage. Six times. He's like, eat my flesh and drink my blood. You got to eat my flesh and you have to drink my blood if you're going to have life in you. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, there's no life in you. You got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And, and like, you're feeling really uncomfortable right now too, hearing that? Imagine the crowd. Like some of you got dug here by a friend and you're like, what are they talking about right now? Like, what have you brought me to? They're talking about eating flesh and drinking blood right now. That's the way the crowds are feeling about this. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. This is what he's saying. They're getting really uncomfortable. And then he says this. He makes a promise. He says, the person that eats his flesh and drinks his blood will live. Will live. Now think about this for a moment. I want you, I want you to think about this. He compared his body to the manna from heaven. He's the bread of life. And in fact, he compared it to the manna in the wilderness. So, so watch this. When the people of God were in the desert, in the wilderness, and God brought manna from heaven, how did it sustain them and nurture them? In what way? It wasn't by seeing it. It wasn't by getting up real close to it. It wasn't by touching it or smelling it. What did they have to do in order to be benefactors from it? What did they have to do to actually receive benefit? Answer, they had to eat it. It wasn't simply believe in the manna and you're going to get nourished. They had to eat it. They had to eat and what Jesus is saying here is the same thing. If you want to have life in you, it's not going to be simply believing. you got to eat. you got to partake. you got to consume. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. Partake of me. They don't understand this. In fact, here's the thing that's really interesting about this. John says, Jesus said these things in the synagogue when he taught in Capernaum. And, and this is what should stand out. If you, if you know a little bit about Jesus' ministry, Capernaum was his headquarters. He was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, but you know where he lived as an adult and actually did most of his ministry out of? He did it in the town of Capernaum. This is headquarters. This is ministry headquarters for him. In other words, these are the people who are the most team Jesus than anyone. These are the people who are following him from Capernaum and going from village to village to village around Galilee, some even following him all the way down to Jerusalem. This, this is the place of his greatest support. And this is the place where they're scratching their head right now because they're going, what is he talking about? What does he mean? Eat his flesh, drink his blood? This is like a politician going back to his hometown. This, would be, this is the place where you get all the support. This is the politician going back to his home state. That's the place where he's got the most admirers and devotees. There's some real friction being created here by Jesus. There's some real friction. There's some real angst happening. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. And here's, look, he never says, 
hey guys, don't freak out. Here's what I mean by that. There's so much tension being built and he's doing nothing to soften it. He's doing nothing to lift it. He's doing nothing to ease the tension. He wants you to live in the tension of what does it mean to eat his flesh and drink his blood? We want Jesus really quickly in this to be like, hey, don't, don't worry. It's just a metaphor. And he's not doing that. Now, here's the significance of his flesh and his blood. His flesh and his blood. In Israel's sacrificial system, how did God relate to his people? It wasn't on the basis of their goodness, was it? It wasn't on the basis of their sinlessness, not at all. In fact, the sacrificial system, the killing and the giving up of bulls and goats and lambs, was that they needed a substitute in order for God to deal with the nation and the individual by grace. Something had to substitute for them because they were sinners and rebels against God. And so in Israel's sacrificial system, the body of the bull, the body of the goat, the body of the lamb would be set forward and killed as if it was the sinner against God so that the sinners against God could be treated with grace and mercy and love. The body was a substitute in the place of. The blood was the recognition and acknowledgement that there was a death that occurred. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. This blood from the slaughtered sacrifice would be sprinkled onto the altar. This is the way by which Israel and the individuals in it could be in right standing with God. They understood flesh and blood. Without a substitute, they couldn't stand before God. Now, now, now watch. That's why the New Testament writer speaks so frequently about Jesus' body and Jesus' blood. It's why we sing songs about Jesus' body and Jesus' blood. It's why we take communion in our churches, the Lord's Supper, recognizing Jesus' body and Jesus' blood. What is this all about? It's about the fact that his body was given up as a substitute for us. It's his flesh that he gives for the light of the world. That's why John the Baptist sees him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the sacrifice. His blood is shed. That's why Peter writes, more precious than silver or gold is the blood of Christ. You want to know why it's the most precious commodity that's ever been on earth? Because you can't go hit oil or find gold or discover diamonds that could ever atone for your sins. No amount of money in a bank account or a 401k could make you right with God. There's one commodity on this earth that's ever been that can stand in your place, and that's the blood of Christ. That's why we sing about blood. Have you ever thought about that? If, if, a, just a, if somebody that didn't have a clue what we were talking about came in and listened to our singing, we're singing like, oh, we love your blood. I mean, think about how crazy that sounds. But we love the blood of Christ. We love the body of Christ given up for sinners because we understand what it means. Apart from him, we have no forgiveness of sins. Apart from the sacrifice, the body, and the blood. Listen, listen. It's true for Israel and it's true for you tonight. Without a substitute, we cannot stand before God as we are. Well, let me correct that. You can stand before God as you are. But you don't want to. Because standing before God as we are is to stand before God condemned. Condemned in our trespasses and sins. 
Condemned for following after the course of this world. Condemned for following after the ways of our flesh. Condemned for following the prince of the power of the air, Satan. We're condemned. You don't want to stand before God as you are. You need one who will stand before you. So like in Colossians, you can be hid in Christ. That's why we must eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now, how do we do that? What does that mean? How do we actually take him up on eat my flesh and drink my blood? Let me just give you a, a couple of practical handles. Here, here's the first one. Here's the first one. You have to put saving faith in Christ. The way you eat his flesh and drink his blood is you start by recognizing your sin and the fact that you need a savior. In order to stand before God, you have to come to this recognition that you're condemned and lost apart from a savior. You're a sinner and God does not deal with sinners with grace. We need a mediator. We need a substitute. And I don't care how good you are. When I think about like the most godly person I know, like I think about my grandmother, my, my sweet little 93-year-old grandmother and all her sweetness, you know, just want to grab her and, mm, all the sweetness in that lady. And she loves God. She's a wonderful woman. And she's not getting in on the basis of her own merit. It's Christ alone or nothing for her. And she's the godliest woman I know. The same is true for us. You have to recognize you need a Savior. And once you recognize you need a Savior, you must trust Jesus as that Savior who died for sinners like you. That he died and rose again for our justification, for our forgiveness. And then you cry out for him to receive you, a sinner, and forgive you. You must do this. That's how you eat his flesh and drink his blood. You put saving faith in him. Now, here's the second thing. If you've done the first thing, see, for some of you tonight, you've not ever done that. You've been around church, you've been in proximity, but you've never taken up the bread and ate. You've been all around it, but you've never eaten his flesh or drinking his blood. Begins by putting saving faith. Now, for those who have, and I pray that's the majority of you, how do you keep eating his flesh and drinking his blood? Here's the second thing. You have to learn to depend on him daily. Daily. You know what I mean by depend on him? It glorifies God when we recognize that in him is our help. In him is our strength. In him is our comfort. In him is our peace. In him is our wisdom. In him is our joy. When you depend on him, you are eating his flesh. You are drinking his blood. When you're going to him to say, I need you for help today. Lord, I need you for wisdom today. I need you for strength today. I need you to be my joy today. That's what it looks like to depend on him. And can I just help you to get something on the front end? Everybody in your life right now is trying to move you towards independence. And that's the right thing. To learn how to manage money. Take care of your, your possessions and your goods. To be where you say you're going to be and do what you say you're going to do without having everybody hovering over you. Learning to be more independent is one of the ways that you're maturing as a young adult. But watch this. But the Christian life is the exact opposite. The Christian life is about learning to become more dependent. It's not a badge of honor to try to live an independent life as a Christian. The most mature people I know are the most, are the most dependent people on God. Not those who think that they can get by and do life on their own. And so be dependent. Here's a third thing. I'm going to tie it with 
kind of a fourth thing with it because they kind of go together. Maybe it's a 3A and 3B. You must obey him. If you want to eat his flesh and drink his blood, you must obey him and you must submit to his authority. You must submit to his authority. What does that mean? Here's what it means. It means your posture towards him daily is your will be done. Your authority, my God. Your word are my commands. That is a posture, gang. That is a way of living. To obey and to submit under his authority. And let me just kind of press this in on you for a second. If you do the first one, put saving faith in him, and then you live out the second one by trying to depend on him for your help, your strength, your comfort, but then you don't submit and obey him as Lord, you're not eating his flesh and drinking his blood. You're not living as a stranger and exile in the world. Because here's the deal. The overarching theme of all those points that I just gave you is this. Your life is not your own. The overarching theme, gang, is that you don't belong to yourself. You're all here right now. You look pretty. You look nice. You look good. You're doing your thing. You're living your life. You're, you're made uniquely, individually by God. There's no carbon copies in here. And there's no nobodies in here. But can I just tell you something? The reason your life exists at all, and the reason that it exists now, and the reason it will exist another day into the future, is because you are made by God, you are created for God, and all things about you are meant to be for Him, through Him, and to Him. You exist for His glory. You can clap because it's true. You exist for His glory. Now watch. Watch. That means you must learn to lay down your life and follow him. And if you choose to do that, that will make you a sojourner and stranger in this world. It will make you unlike everyone else. It was bizarre for those who were listening in John 6, and it'll be bizarre to everyone else around you if you live this way too. Let's watch how this ends. Begin in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. When Jesus says these things, the crowd's response is not just raised eyebrows, but they're like, this is hard. Like, who can get what you're talking about right now? Who, who can understand these words? And Jesus says, well, it's okay that you're saying that because it's the Spirit. The Spirit has to give you life. The Spirit has to open your eyes. I'm not shocked you don't get this because these words are spirit and truth and the spirit and life and you need the spirit to see these things. Jesus raises the issue here also of Judas 
which is the first time in John's gospel this happens. But it also lets us know Jesus is very aware of those in the crowd that are betrayers, that they're lurking. He knows who belongs to him and who doesn't, just like he does in this room. He knows who belongs to him and who doesn't. Now, after all of this, after all these, these words, many of these people in these gathered crowds who had previously been following him and associating themselves with Jesus turn away. They leave. They leave. They left because Jesus thinned out the crowds with these hard teachings. I just want you to notice again, Jesus doesn't chase them. He's not like, please guys, I won't say this again. I promise I won't say anything else hard. He says, you're going to eat my flesh, you're going to drink my blood if you want life. If not, there's no life in you. And they're like, ah, oh, I don't know about this. We're leaving. And he's like, we're out of here. And then Jesus turns to his 12 disciples. And this is his question. I want you to feel this. Do you want to go away as well? You going to leave too? Do you want to head out the door as well? Again, this is how life works. There are a lot of things that are not going to go your way. And oftentimes when things don't go your way, and oftentimes when things don't go the way that people in life want them to, they walk away because it gets hard. When trials come, when pain comes, when suffering comes, are you going to leave too? What about when what you want to do conflicts with what Jesus says to do? Are you going to walk away too? What about when what Jesus says conflicts with what is popular and fashionable in our culture today? Are you going to walk away too? See, it's, it's one thing to read this story and to think, oh, man, those people, like, what's wrong with them? You know, they walked away because they don't want to live for Jesus. And yet, I'm just going to say, gang, we're in the position to hear this question too. Are you going to walk away when life is tough? And you say, God, this is not how I wanted my story to go. I wanted it to go this direction, and I'm over here. Will you walk away? When you've got this desire to do something and God's word keeps constraining you and saying, that's not what I say, that's not what I, what I outline, that's not what I command, that's not how I say that's supposed to be, and your desire and God's word are conflicting, are you going to walk away? It's real easy when everything lines up for us to say, I'll follow you anywhere, Jesus. It can get really hard, though, when it doesn't line up with us. When you're living in your school, in your team, when you go to the university, wherever it may be, and, and your commitment to follow Jesus now puts you at odds with the, the culture and what is popular and, and what, is, what is celebrated. And, and you've got to make a, a decision about are you just going to conform over so that it's easy, so it doesn't cost you? Are you going to walk away too? That's why we are strangers and sojourners in the world. It's because when life doesn't go our way and suffering does come and pain does arrive, we follow him. We trust him. 
And I'm talking to you guys as somebody who's living this right now, y'all. I'm not just talking. My wife and I lost my 15-year-old son on December 1st, just several months ago. I don't understand all the ways of God. If I was writing the script for how it would be for me and my family, I would have never written it this way. But here's the question I'm faced in the midst of hurt and pain and sorrow and grief and loss. Am I going to walk away? Am I going to leave? What is Peter's answer? Peter's reply is this. Where else would I go? Where else could we go, Jesus? You alone have the words of eternal life. Listen. Peter and the disciples don't understand any of this any more than the rest of the crowds do. You realize that, right? They don't understand what he means by eat my flesh and drink my blood. They don't get what he means by bread of life. They're as hard-headed as the rest of them. But here's Peter's posture. Where else can I turn, Lord? I may not understand what you're saying or what you're doing or what you mean, but where else would I go? Who else can I look to? Where else can I turn? You alone have the words of eternal life. You alone are God. Many in our culture walk away when it's hard. Many in our culture walk away when life doesn't go their way. Many in our culture walk away when the Bible is out of fashion with the popular culture. And at some point, y'all, at some point, the question's going to be aimed at you. You're going to be in some trouble, some trial, some difficulty. You're going to be at some crossroads about what direction you're going to go. And Jesus is going to ask these words just as he did in John 6. Are you going to leave also? It's hard. And you know why it's hard? Because every day you're choosing to die. Every day. You're choosing to follow the words of another, not your own. Every day you're choosing to believe the promises of another, not your own. Every day you're bowing the knee to follow another, to listen to another every day. You alone, Lord, have the words of life. Where else would I go? That's what it looks like. That's what it means to live as a sojourner and stranger in the world. Will you live that kind of Christian life? Will you live that kind of faithfulness in the midst of whatever situation, confrontation, difficulty that you are undergoing? I know some of you in this room right now, you're in it. You're in it. And I just want you to hear these words. Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's where life is. Some of you need to eat his flesh and drink his blood for the first time ever. You need to put saving faith in him. You need to realize there is nowhere else for you to go. You're, you'll stand before God as you are and be condemned. Run to him. Plead to him. And seek forgiveness in him and his cross. He gave himself up for you. Some of you are followers, but you're not learning to daily walk with him. Your life looks a lot like the world as opposed to being an exile, an alien from the world. And you need to repent of some things that are creeping in where you're just letting yourself go about the motions while you really live like everyone else. 
You need to put it on the line with Jesus. You need to be honest with Jesus. Are you going to turn away or are you going to follow after him? Does he hold the words of life for you? Some of you are in seasons of trial, relational. Maybe it's parents, maybe it's family issues, maybe it's health issues. Maybe you too have lost someone. And your temptation in this season is to be mad at God and angry at God because you don't get it. You don't know why it had to be this way. And I, I understand. My goodness, I understand. But can I tell you, there's nowhere else that you can go. There's no one else who has the words of life that can sustain you, comfort you, help you, strengthen you, and give you joy in the midst of even the darkest valleys. There's nowhere else to turn. He's the bread of life. And my prayer for you tonight is that we would be a people like Peter who would say, there's nowhere else we'll go. It's to you, Jesus. I'm gonna ask you to bow your head. Before we stand in worship, I'm gonna pray over you, but I just wanna let you know, there's people in the room who would love to minister to you, pray with you. I, I know in situations and settings like this, it's kind of like, hey, let's wait till the, the last day, the last night before we make decisions, deal with God, let the Spirit move in us. But I just wanna just say fooey to all that. that, that's garbage. The Spirit of God is moving. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. What that means tonight is that if you need to pray with someone, I want you to pray with someone. If things you need to come and bow and, and just and spend some time alone with God, that you would do that. If you need to go talk to someone, maybe it's crossing that line of faith to put trust in Christ for the first time, then do that. But here's what I want to just get out of the way tonight. The enemy would love for this to be a time where no one can do anything because we're scared of what everybody else is going to think. Can we just take the mask off and be done with that right off the get-go? I just took mine off, guys. I'm, I'm in a daily fight. And I know the one who fights along with me, but I'm just being real with you. I'm clinging every day to the old rugged cross. I'm clinging every day to Christ for my hope. Some of you need to take the mask off and do the same. And you've got a lot of people here who love you sitting around you. There's Bible study leaders here. You have your youth leaders here. So here's what we're going to do. Bible study leaders, in a moment after I pray, I just want you to be in the aisles or in the back or in the front to spread out. And gang, if you need prayer, you go. If you need to bow down, you go. If you need to grab somebody else and pray over them, you go. Whatever it might be, we're going to let God have his way in this place. Father God, thank you so much that you have drawn people like us undeserving to Christ. The one who came into the world as the bread of the bread of heaven who comes and gives up his flesh for the life of the world to cross. It's his cross that's our salvation. It's his death that's our life. It's in his finished work that we have hope tonight regardless of what we're facing. Lord, to live as strangers and exiles means we're depending on you instead of everything else in this world. It means we find our hope in you instead of everything else in this world. And it also means we listen to you instead of everything else in this world. Would you raise up a church that will live like that? For your glory, for our joy. Would you comfort the hurting in this place? You alone have the words of life. Would you convict sinners in this place? You alone have the words of life. Would you bring courage in our hearts to live for you and not the approval of the world because you alone have the words of life? Do something tonight that bears fruit for years to come, I ask and I pray. All this, Jesus, in your name.